Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Today's guest is the Smile Politely publisher and co-founder, president of Fine Bersoni, as well as founder of the Pygmalion Festival, Seth Fine. Good morning, Seth. Good morning, Elizabeth. Smile Politely positions itself as Champaign-Urbana's cultural magazine. It's in its 12th year of publishing. Can you walk us back to the origin? So in 2007, we had been without an alternative source of media for two years. The hub was the last iteration of the alternative weekly that came out of the paper, which was from the the CU City View, which is what Sinclair made, the Octopus, which started as the Optimist and going all the way back to like, who knows, from the 70s. So it had been a couple of years since there was an alternative form of media. I had been writing a column for Buzz Magazine uh, and the Daily Illini, Illini Media Company. And I started to get older and that audience is younger. And so I stopped doing that. And then me and my friend Mason Kessinger just decided to do that because it didn't exist. And we felt like Champaign-Urbana deserved some sort of outlet for the community to speak about the things that the News Gazette was not speaking about or rarely speaking about. Although Melissa uh, Murley did such a great job at the art scene, it still wasn't tapping into kind of the underground, so to speak. And certainly wasn't providing comprehensive coverage about music and restaurants. And the Daily Illini is very much a student uh, training ground and not really by the community or of the community. And so that was what the impetus was. In the modern era, 2007 version of the modern era, you know, how does a community function as a participating body in a magazine? How do we make a magazine by the community and for the community, not necessarily defined by professional journalists, but by amateur enthusiasts? You know, I always use the reference, still haven't got a taker yet, but like, where are the fishing holes? I know there's fishing holes and people fish around Champaign-Urbana and Kaufman Lake or whatever, but there's other fishing holes. I know there are. So wouldn't it be cool if somebody was like, going to tell everyone about like, hey, you can go catch crappie here or whatever. Or somebody was like a golfing enthusiast and like wanted to define every front nine and back nine. Watch out for the dog leg on 14 because, you know, this big pine gets in your way. I mean, just like kind of random facts and knowledge about our community done just by the enthusiast and not by a professional that's been hired to do so. Do you consider yourself to be, quote, mainstream media? Now we are, yeah. I mean, there's no way out of that. I, I, I hate that. Even though I... I know that our identity is not what I would consider to be mainstream media. After 12 years and you know now tens of thousands of social media followers and the history that we have of breaking some relatively noteworthy national news stories, um, yeah, I think that we're considered part of the mainstream media. And I will tell you, that is a huge bummer for me. <laughs> Just like Pygmalion is no longer, you know, underground, like, you know, DIY festival, even though I'm like, this is so DIY. I were literally on the ground. I'm not hiring crazy national, like, production company. It's me at 6 a.m. closing down the streets. You're fighting adulthood. Totally. <laughs> I don't want to do this, you know. Who do you consider to be your biggest competitor? Oh, I don't see us as having any competition. We've created our own space, and that should be everyone's. It's certainly in media, if you've got to be able to create your own space. I mean, people frequently, and Laura and I joke about this, but Laura Blyle and I are like, you know, she's one of my best buds. And frequently people have been like, oh, you know, smile politely, Shambana moms, you know, it's competitive. We're like, did you even read what was on the site? Because what they do and what we do 
These are wholly different magazines and there's space enough in a community this size and comprehensive and robust for all of us. It's just about whether you want to hustle or not. Let's talk about Pygmalion. Next year, you're celebrating the 15th year. It's become the premier music, food, family activity festival. How has it grown from the idea of a few people to what it has become today? It started as a music festival. And at the time, there weren't a lot of music festivals to draw experience or uh, identity from. There were some, but not very many. When I first started it, just decided that wouldn't it be cool to have a festival? But, you know, we do all these shows all over town. Iron Post, Canopy Club, Mike and Molly's, High Dive, Cowboy Monkey, Bentley's, all the places we do shows. What if we just did a bunch in one weekend and gave it a name and wouldn't that be cool? And it was pretty cool. And so, you know, if I sat here and spoke to you about all of the iterations over the course of 14, 15 years, we'd be here all day. But what I can say is that over the course of time and through influence and um, cooperation, we've expanded the scope from just music to literature, innovation and technology, comedians, podcasts, and interesting activations and speakers that are designed to be both educational and entertaining at once. Something that helps to better identify what Champaign-Urbana is, what it can be, and why it's still important to be here. I've outaged my demographic as far as the music goes, and I've had to accept that over the course of the last you know, three or four years in particular. I feel good about that now. At first it was, you know, you're fighting it, and you're like, I, I still know it's cool, don't worry. And then you realize, uh, no you don't. <laughs> and, and I think that that's a healthy place for anyone to be in. I mean, I think the country be in a much better position if maybe some of the uh, <clears throat> 70 year olds just like retire. I'm saying that at some point we have to allow young people to step into positions where they're better suited to run it. Is it hard for you to give up ownership and control of things? No, no. I still, I mean, I still own the festival. And, you know, I've handed the booking responsibilities for the most part to Patrick Singer, our vice president, who's 10 years my junior. He, he knows what is going to work in a, lot, in a lot of ways that I don't because he has the time and the inclination to pay attention in a way that I used to 10, 15 years ago. And so the scope of the programming has changed and that we recognize that, you know, in the mid aughts, when I started it, indie rock was all the rage. It was Arcade Fire and Death Cab for Cutie and The Walkman and The National and Sufjan Stevens, like a bunch of, you know, kind of white indie rock. And it's not that hip hop wasn't, didn't exist, very much did. It just wasn't what I came up in. And I felt kind of disingenuous trying to be a promoter of that type of music. But at a certain point, you go from deeply personal representation to establishment and trying to figure out what it is that counts. And what counts is making sure that this community, this campus, in a lot of ways, gets to be excited about what we're doing. This is not about making myself feel really good about booking a shoegaze act from the 90s, which I did and which flopped so hard that it made me want to cry. Now we've shifted how we're programming Pygmalion in a lot of ways. Um, there's not as much space for experimentation as there once was. And this is a big, huge, massive conversation that relates to corporate takeover of live music related to Live Nation and AEG Live. These are multinational conglomerates that run the music industry and buy up independent festivals and venues and continue to homogenize how we ingest 
live music and, and expand the um, cost of it. That's a different discussion, but it does factor into our bottom line here, which is to say Pygmalion is, and I know this sounds egomaniacal to say, but it's just the facts. Pygmalion is not some local rinky-dink festival that takes place in good old Urbana. It is in the national conversation with festivals similarly sized, but even greater sized from, you know, Tree Fort in Boise, to Coachella in Indio, to Lollapalooza in Chicago, to Hopscotch in Raleigh, we are held to the same financial standards as the rest of these festivals. The difference is, is that we've got a market, if you include Bloomington Normal and Charleston and wherever, we've got a market of about a half a million people to a million people, and the rest of these markets have millions upon millions of people with a lot of corporate opportunity for donations and sponsorship. And we don't have that here. So we always have to fight and work really hard to program in a way that's competitive with our brethren. Let's shift gears here and talk about your wife, Justine. She is an amazing photographer. She's listed as founder of Smile Politely. What was her involvement at the beginning? <laughs> Sorry, honey. But um, she she was an... <laughs> She was Justine's a, f- a founder of, of of Smile Politely in so much that at the time she was certainly present and participant in our initial meetings, and she was definitely doing some photo work. And I think that she gets credit for being part of the initial team, but she went she went off to grad school right away and turned her attention away from Smile Politely pretty quickly. But Justine and I are a team. Ever since we met in 2004, no matter what it is we've been doing, we're dividing and conquering whatever it is that we want to do or feel like we should try to do. And so I'd argue that I'm a founder of Justine Bersoni Photography as well, and that I've been supportive of that in myriad ways. And so she's a founder of Pygmalion and Smile Politely, and we share those financial responsibilities and the emotional baggage that comes with it. I mean, our marriage is a marriage like any other, but we're also co-owners of a corporation in the state of Illinois. And if we're not supportive of what we're doing, then we're probably damaging our ability to execute. So, yeah, we're partners. <laughs> You're also an Urbana graduate. You and I bonded over that early. Why have you chosen to raise your children in this town? Well, part of it's been, you know, a function of necessity. This is where our business is, and this is where we established a life, a livelihood. The other part of it is uh, my family. You know, when we first were married, my brother and his wife and kids were here, and my sister and her band and her husband were here. And now they've all moved to different parts of the country, And but my folks are still here. And I've got a really great friendship and relationship with them. I don't want to be away from them uh, if I can help it. And so that's part of the reason. But, you know, we do work here. And we were moving we were going to move. We were going to move to Chicago. We had packed up all of our vinyl and moved it to Chicago. And Justine woke up one morning and it was like, I could see in her eyes that she had something very important to say and was like, I think that I need to get a master's degree. I was like, okay. She's like, I'm all these jobs and like I'm applying for museums and galleries. She had a degree in art history from U of I and 
She's like, I think I need to get a master's degree. I was like, okay. And she's like, but I think that we should, I should do it here and we should stay here and you should do Pygmalion again and we'll figure it out from there. And I was actually against it because I was kind of ready to move. This was 2006 that she said this to me. She was actually the one that decided that it would be better for us with the knowledge that we knew we were going to get married to establish ourselves here, go to school here, and then take it from there. And here we are. And I'm glad you chose to do that. Your kids are learning Spanish at a young age. And what gave you the idea to travel with them and immerse them in other cultures? The big thing for me has always been trying to identify ways that we as parents can offer our children something that we wish that we had or wish uh, an opportunity that we'd wish we'd been granted as kids. You know, in almost every part of the world that is developed and decently funded educationally, uh, bilingualism is uh, pay no mind. It's second nature. It's just, there are no places in the world that are developed that they don't learn two languages. There's not even a lot of places in the world that aren't as developed that they don't learn two languages. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I just don't believe in the idea that there's somehow some you know dark forces at work to, to, to divine us. But the United States of America is a well-known purveyor of homogenous identity and culture. You know, it, you see that with the wackadoodle motherfuckers that are like, you come to America, you speak English. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. My kids are going to be better off and any kid's going to be better off just from a cognitive level, learning to speak another language and being able to translate in their head and kind of identify, oh, this means that and that means this. Part of the problem that we have right now with this you know, divisive issue of a border wall is that we can't speak their language and we can't really come to the table in any significant way and communicate on a emotional level. And that's really too bad because if you've spent any time in Mexico, you quickly learn like this is the very same place as the United States of America. They got the same things that we do and they've got the same hopes and dreams and they've got the same you know, socioeconomic problems that we do. We've fabricated this problem. This has never been a problem. I'm not saying that we don't need any sort of regulation, but like this is crazy. And so, yeah, there's something of a reaction to the idea of, you know, our current political situation where I want my kids to not just learn Spanish, but to learn it in Mexico so that they can be part of the next generation of people that stand up to those poorly educated people, sadly, that have a problem with Mexicans or with the Spanish language are like, uh-uh, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. Let me help to bridge that gap. And if there's a scenario where, God forbid, uh, a Spanish language uh, student was being bullied, you'd want for an American citizen to be able to step in and speak their language and make friends. While we're on the subject of cultural appropriation, you hate writing about and hearing about the chief. <laughs> what else are you so sick of being asked about or writing about? I just don't know that there's something as, you know, kind of monumental and, you know, emotionally taxing as the chief issue has been since I've been thinking about it forever, you know, and, and fighting against it and just like banging your head against the wall. Let me ask this then. You grew up here as well and there was the chief at games and there was a silence and we didn't realize as kids that what was happening was offensive to people. At what point in your life did you look at the chief and, and listen to other people and think, all right, I shouldn't be celebrating this? Oh, it was early. You know, I, I kind of had an interesting scenario in that 
I grew up here, but I was raised as a Purdue fan. So I was never big rah-rah chief University of Illinois from an emotional level. I cheered for the Purdue Boilermakers because my father grew up in the South Hammond, Indiana. And so he grew up as a Purdue fan. He came to school here for, you know, in the 60s for grad school and stayed here, but he didn't stop being a Purdue fan. He had us. We watched Purdue games. My dad is fanatic about Purdue sports, and so so are we. So I was already kind of side-eyeing the University of Illinois athletic program to begin with. But the way that I came to believe and understand that the chief was deeply offensive to people that were not of my own background and why that was really important was, was actually something my Grammy said. After Charlene Teeters started to protest the chief at the games and it kind of started to become news, my poppy had died and Grammy started spending more time down here. And on a news broadcast, we were watching and there was this thing about the chief and the protests and all this and that, and that inspired a discussion. And it was my Grammy who lost a lot of people to the Holocaust. It was actually her my poppy, but you know, they were married during the Holocaust. She was the one that identified the appropriation and the idea that the Native Americans had been put through a genocide and that we are, as a nation, are the perpetrators of that genocide. She immediately was able to draw a comparison to Germany and to Nazism and to the idea of making amends and turning a corner and trying to find good ways to be better people in the face of that genocide. And she was the one that, I'm not going to imitate her beautiful Jewish screechy voice, but she was the one that said, can you imagine if they trotted out a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, six-foot-three man and dressed him up as a rabbi and had him dance around his entertainment? And I was just like, oh, yeah. Obviously, it's not a totally perfect analogy, but it's quite similar. I've never been able to understand how anyone is able to like rationalize it. The symbology of it, I definitely start to hear their argument where it's like, okay, it's an honor and this is a dignified symbol and we're not, you know, I, I, I start to hear the argument, but still, you know, I don't understand what's so hard about simply listening to somebody else and hearing them say over and over and over and declare in official capacities, this is hurtful. This in psychological institutions, the American Psychological Association, people who are well studied that say, this is damaging, you're hurting people. And they still can't be like, Ah, we should probably stop. No, in fact, they dig in their heels. They're like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, it's only the American Psychological Association. They don't know what they're talking about, but you do because you got a, a feeling? Come on. I have one more question for you before I let you go. It might be an Urbana thing, but I have noticed you and I both curse a lot. <laughs> do you have a favorite curse word? Uh, that's a great question, Elizabeth. No, I think it's contextual. I mean, I'm not of the belief that... Curse words are somehow a negative thing. Of course, I was an English major, writing major, and part of my job is um, persuasive speaking and writing. And I think that words are powerful and a gift and an extraordinary weapon. And that there's a time and a place to curse. It's a way to emphasize something. You know someone's mad, not based solely on the way that their eyes look, 
or the way that their the tone of their voice is, but based on how they're presenting it. And, you know, we need adjectives and adverbs and we need to be able to define infinitives in ways that are powerful. And I don't know that I have a favorite curse word. What I do know, and as a father who has already got a five-year-old that's dropping some F-bombs here and there, I would like to update this idea of what is a curse word and place it in context. I feel this kind of same way about religion. It's like, you know, you, well, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the Bible and how things are written. And certainly when we're looking at Pauline doctrine and his letters to the Ephesians and Romans, the world was a very different place then. And if we cannot somehow create space for an updated version of the world. I mean, people were dying at 35 then. So, and there were no like apartment complexes. So I think that the same thing applies to language. It's alive. Language is not inert. It is intended to be alive and grow with who we are. And so as we've discussed in the past, but we can talk about right here, my son got in trouble for saying, what the heck? Look, I get it. I understand that there has to be a line. But can we, can, can we move the line for what the heck? Because it's an expressive way of showcasing uh, surprise. Explain to me what's wrong with what the heck. This is an outdated and relatively puritanical ideation that has just been transferred over the course of time. I understand if he says what the fuck, that as a five-year-old in daycare, we can't say this because the language infers something very powerful. And not appropriate. What the heck? That makes me want to curse. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that was ridiculous. So I don't know. I don't know what my favorite one is, but now I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time. And you've, I, now I have to think about something else. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. Text me the word next time. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Seth Fine, thank you so much for your time. Today. You're so welcome. <laughs>